Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi. How'd you know it was me? Same caller ID. Oh, what's it say? Linda trip. It does? I have an unpublished phone, the idiot. The great story here is this vast right-wing conspiracy that has been conspiring against my husband since the day he announced for president. May of 91, Bill Clinton harassed me on the job and then basically told me, let's keep this between ourselves. We had no sexual relationship with this young woman. There is not a sexual relationship. That is accurate. Hello and welcome to Still Watching, colon, American Crime Story, colon, Impeachment, the Vanity Fair podcast dedicated to the FX series American Crime Story Impeachment. This is the final episode of the season, episode 10, titled The Wilderness. I am Katie Rich. I'm Richard Lawson. And we have a guest with us this time. Sorry, I'm going to preempt you and reintroduce you, but introduce yourself, special guest. Julie Miller. I'm so excited to be here to discuss the finale. (laughs) Yeah, Julie, you've been like the third leg of our stool covering um, impeachment this entire season. You've been doing incredible coverage on VF.com and talking to Allison Tripp, Linda Tripp's daughter, um, who which we certainly want to hear about. And we finally got you on the show for the finale, which we're excited to do. And then speaking of people we finally got on the show, this week's interview is with none other mo- than Monica Lewinsky, a Vanity Fair contributor and uh, the a producer on this series and the character at the center of this series, which is it's a funny interview in which I ask her about Monica in third person because of the way the show depicts her. But we'll we'll get to that later. Um, so before we get into the show, Julie, before we kind of talk to you about your experience of watching it, I did want to read two emails that we got um, like really delightful emails. We love the emails that we get from all of you. And you can still email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Uh, from here on out, I mean, we'd like to hear more about about impeachment and maybe we'll tweet about it or something. This will be our last episode on the show. But obviously, you can continue to hear Richard and Sonia talking about succession and email about that. So anyway, we got an email from Mason um, who said, I was so thrilled when you announced you were going to do ACS impeachment because I worked on that show. From May until late August when shooting wrapped, I worked as a COVID health monitor on impeachment, my first job in the biz. I was essentially a production assistant focused solely on making sure the crew was masked up. 
Um, so that's a new job on a, uh, on a film set. And so it's a longish email, but he talked about noticing when Edie Falco spoke to you, Richard, about how isolated the COVID protocols were and how challenging that was from his perspective, too. He also noted uh, the production literally lasted over a year, beginning in August of 2020 and wrapping in August of 2021. I had not realized how long that was, which is really that's really intense and um, makes me more impressed by what they pulled off. Well, yeah. One of the things that Sarah Paulson said when I talked to her was that normally she has a lot of incubation time from when she wraps to when something airs so she can kind of process what she just did and then she gets audience reaction. But I think for her, it was really only a couple of weeks, if, yeah. if, if even that. Wow. Yeah, it was really kind of heartbreaking how she talked about how she hadn't like had a chance to like process the show before the review started coming out, which made me, um, you know, usually I'm... Not too sympathetic when actors complain about critics, but I really felt for her when she said that. Yeah. Um, so then he talked about how they shot. He said, we shot the grand jury scenes for five or six days straight. A huge set was built on stage right next to the executive residence set at the Fox lot in Century City. And hardly anyone could fit in there besides the performers and the three cameras. There was one instance where they performed all seven pages of script for Linda Tripp's testimony. And there was huge applause afterward. Um, and he says that was also the day that the COVID team neglected to put sandbags on a tent and it blew across the studio lot, smashing into the windshield of Sarah Paulson's car. Yikes. She does not deserve that. <laughs> no one deserves that, but definitely not Sarah Paulson. Um, and then two more things. The scene where Monica describes the most explicit sexual acts to judge immigrant was shot on Beanie's birthday. Everyone appreciated the irony. And uh, that the Russian accordion player scene was the last scene for both Edie and Clive, which is why he looks so happy. <laughs> <laughs> that is an amazing trivia note <laughs> i know i mean you know you only get those russian accordion players for one day so you got to make the most of that uh that time on set oh and he's the just one more thing that the real monica who we'll hear from later uh, came to the set the day they shot the paula jones hustler cover shoot which is fast like that is not the day that i would have thought of monica being on the set but i guess schedules being what they are um so yeah thank you mason for for all those details from the set and for doing that, that work. <clears throat> yes, that, that, yeah, so we seriously. Can have the show, you know, like really essential, uh, essential work. Um, and then one more email from uh, Tara, which is shorter and funny. Uh, when the president was reviewing the list of Congress people who may vote for impeachment, this is on last week's episode. The list was in the Calibri font, which wasn't initially designed until 2002. So. You got, we got you impeachment. That's some historical inaccuracy right there. Well, you know, that goes in tandem because it comes up again in this episode. I mentioned this, I think, when um, in the episode with where it was kind of focused on Hillary in Martha's Vineyard and that kitchen mm -hmm. was not mm -hmm. period appropriate. We have another not period appropriate kitchen and now we have a not period appropriate font. So I think this whole show is a wash because of those. <laughs> Forget it. Toss it out. But they put so much work into the period appropriate Weight Watchers soup can with the right logos. And so, Anilla you know. wafers thing too. <laughs> this week. Um, okay, so Julie, you have been covering the show right along with us uh, on VF.com. You've been talking to Allison Tripp. You've been you know, doing a ton of historical research. How's it been for you? What's your, kind of your overall take on the series been and, and all the learning that you've done? I have just been so fascinated by just the idea, the thought experiment of reexamining the storyline through all these female perspectives. And I'm going to miss Sarah Paulson's Linda Tripp. I never thought I would I would think that or say that. Um, <laughs> but it's it's been fascinating. And it was nice. I got to speak to Allison Tripp early on after she had seen the first episode of the season. And I got to speak to her after the ninth Um and she hadn't been consulted by the series at all. She was very cautious about the series and how it would depict her mother, who she lost not too long ago. 
considering that Monica was a producer, she's kind of always been in this defensive stance given um, what her mother went through. But it was it was just interesting to be riding along that journey with her. And at the end of the day, she's so appreciative to the entire show and Sarah Burgess in particular, who felt such sympathy and Sarah Paulson, clearly, who felt such sympathy towards Linda for this public resurrection, I guess, of her mother's image. So it's it's been interesting to to go through it through that perspective. Um, but I've also just enjoyed the campier storylines, like the Brett Kavanaugh, who got another <laughs> another feature uh, scene. They never and, miss an opportunity to say Kavanaugh, just to remind you who's in there on the star team. Right. No, but it's just such a, an interesting cocktail of elements between that sympathizing with Linda Tripp, empathizing with her. And then, you know, you have the Kavanaugh, you have the... Linda Tripp, Susan, cubicle mate, comedic storyline, which I love. And I'm going to miss. I love that we saw her again this week. Right. We'll get to that. I know. Allison said that was one of her favorite storylines, too. Um, (laughs) So so that was pretty funny to me. But I'm curious to hear what you guys think of the finale. Yeah. I mean, we'll we'll get into kind of the beat by beat of it. I, I'm interested in where it ended. Like, I think I said last week, I was hoping it would maybe jump ahead in the future so we could kind of check in on some of these people. And it ends on a much more melancholy and uncertain note. And I, I talked to Monica about this in our interview about why that felt like an appropriate place to leave it. And it did feel like the right way to end this story. But it doesn't feel like it's over, which is, of course, true, because he's, many of these people are all still alive and living their lives. But it was a, it was an interesting way to, to conclude it. I wonder what you thought, Richard. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think that this episode did, you know, in terms of the artistry, uh, two different uh, sequences that were, you know, maybe obvious, but interesting kind of echoes of each other. We have, you know, uh, Paula doing her photo shoot and Hillary being shot by, I believe, Annie Leibovitz. Uh, um, definitely an Annie Leibovitz type. Yeah. Um, and then the, at the end with the kind of like the interview with George magazine, may it rest, uh, and, yeah. uh, and then Monica at the book signing, like these two, like, here is how some of these people landed. And then here are some, you know, here's where other people did. And I, I thought that that was appropriately somber and thoughtful. Um, even if, yeah, I, it, it did end with a bit more of a sort of, I guess abruptly in a, in a way after all of that than I thought it would. But I, the more I kind of sat with that ending, uh, the more I think it worked because how well, you know, if you'd gone into the future, um, I don't know. I think you, I think you would have lost that real sense of immediacy that this show has had the whole season. Yeah. That's a really good point that like, it is so much of the period that it's in and like the future for some of these people is like less, you know, for, I think Monica's story is pretty inspiring in terms of, in terms of how she's come past it. I think for Paula Jones, it's pretty different. And I don't know if you could like pick out some of them from this and celebrate them and then, um, you know, kind of mourn for others. So it makes sense to leave them at the point where they were. We weren't going to have all the actors dancing to We Are Family at the end, which I had sort of hoped for. <laughs> a full Mamma Mia Just finale. to cleanse our, our hearts and minds. Um, I will say that the Hillary Clinton shoot uh, was, in fact, Annie Leibovitz. It was the December 1998 cover of Vogue uh, with the cover line, The Extraordinary Hillary Clinton, which tells you a lot about where she was at this point post-impeachment. But um, I guess we'll get there. And if you are watching this video... Either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. 
It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Um, Anything you want to say broadly about the finale, Julie, before we get into the beat by beat of the episode? Well, just what Richard was saying, there was so much momentum. I feel like in the last two episodes, I could have gladly gone another episode or two to kind of see. I was especially interested in Linda's, you know, that that bit of regret she she clearly has. Um, And there is just so much lost emotion, I felt like, between the Monica and the Linda character. I almost wanted some sort of like fantasy fiction add on Mm. where they are able to meet up. but yeah, no, it, it really kind of delivered, I thought, on on all the notes I, I had wanted. And then some I did not expect there to be this like cut between that that Hillary Clinton photo shoot and the, the Paula Jones photo shoot. That was a real surprise. Yeah. But um, I also really wanted to see Linda's Christmas tree or Christmas, uh, star, obviously, right. in Virginia. Uh, but you can you can look up lots of photos of it if you want right. to scratch that itch. Allison Tripp also, by the way, said that her uh, father. Sorry, stepfather, Linda's um, surviving husband, comes over to watch the episode each week with the family, in case anyone was curious. Um, wow. I know. And it was very sweet. Allison talked about how her kids miss their grandmother so much, um, even though they aren't really of age for, like, the Star Report's salacious details. She let them watch. I guess they learned about her mother and the, the impeachment scandal through school. And it was it was kind of sad. They would come back afterwards and say, like, as they called her Omi, is Omi a bad person? Um, so she, Allison was just so grateful to have the series to show them to show them that, you know, her That's mother really, wasn't this really sweet villainized character that at least yeah. she was during her lifetime. Um, so. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's get into the episode. And I've I've got it kind of broken down by character, but I think it might be helpful to start with the Star Report part and then the rest of it, which is kind of the denouement of the story. Um, so the episode starts with Monica, and she's um, kind of hiding out in New York, wearing hats and sunglasses and sneaking around and goes to um, meet up with her mom, played by Mira Servino, uh, who you also spoke to, Julie, and we should talk about. Um, and she's kind of selling her mom on the notion of doing this book with Andrew Morton. She did do the book. It came out in March of 1999. So after the impeachment process had, had finished um, and kind of after the Star Report had come out. Um, and as they all emphasize throughout the episode, he's who wrote the book with Princess Diana. Um, I have not read the book. The reviews of it were kind of harsh. It's not something that's been, you know, especially held up in the memory. But to, when you guys were watching this with Monica, where you're like, no, don't do it. Just like go, go to school in London, as she will do later in life and get away from all of this. How would you feel about where we met Monica here? Well, something we talked about earlier um, 
in this season was the class differences at work. Um, you know, Monica is from this wealthy Brentwood. Is it Brentwood, right? Family. Um, yeah, and Paula Jones is definitely not. Um, and we both see them doing things because they need the money, you know? And I think mm-hmm. that's one thing in terms of Monica's side of things where she's paying all these lawyers, these, you know, powerful, expensive lawyers, um, all this money and she really needs it. And she gets a huge payday for the book. I think they say $500,000 in this episode. Um, and you know, one hopes that she was able to use some of that money to like go start her new life. I know she did some other things um, in the immediate years after uh, this show ends um, that also probably went toward that. But like, you know, it's an, it's another thing that another factor in all of this that I guess I hadn't really considered um, beyond a couple conversations between Paula and her, you know, then husband, which is the financial thing. I mean, this was, you know, ruinous. Linda's talking about not having a career. Monica certainly doesn't have a career. Paula's in the wind. Um, and so I think it's important that that this episode dealt with like how these people started to rebuild or, or reshape their lives, um, and and money. Unfortunately, of course, was going to have to be a big part of that. Well, but I, I was struck by Monica savvy in that moment, just knowing how young she is, that she was able to negotiate, um, you know, Andrew Morton authoring that, that book. And I did read the book, and it is an interesting pairing of author and subject because it does sort of cast her in. It's it's a little bit more of like the fairy tale version of the story, which maybe you needed as a counterpoint to the salaciousness of the Star Report. But mm-hmm. um, no, no, Richard, that's such a good point. I did read an excerpt of it. I think it's the first chapter, which is almost beat for beat the opening of this series where it's Monica at the gym and then she gets a page from Linda and then she goes to meet her at the mall and she reads a magazine. And so you do, I think the DNA of this show is a lot in there of being kind of sympathetic to Monica's point of view, although obviously the, the show kind of expands beyond that. Okay, so we go back to the to the star team. I think for the last time, I think this is the last we see uh, Mike Emick and Jackie Bennett and good old Brett Kavanaugh, um, they're kind of just thrilled to be about to publish the report. As we saw in the previous episode, they're kind of rushing to get it out. I think I guess it's just after Labor Day comes out. It, they sent it to Congress on September 10th um, and they bring it to the steps of the Hill and no one knows it's coming. Clinton doesn't know it's coming. Uh, kind of in real life, the Hill, the, the Congress decided not to let Clinton get a look at it before they published it on the Internet, which was two days later after the star team delivered it. Uh, and you see this media chaos going around where they tip off Lisa Myers, who we'll talk about more later, and then someone tips off Drudge, and then the White House knows it's coming, and Monica's watching it on TV, uh, and Coulter finds out about it. Um, we're kind of back to the media spectacle, which we've had in previous episodes, which is, as far as I can tell, is pretty much what happened in real life. And for me, it kind of highlighted the like the publicity-seeking aspect of the star team, even though they kept claiming they were doing things like by the law, like... They were so thrilled by all this chaos that they caused, which I, I think is a smart way to handle that. I really liked that we had repeated moments in this whole, you know, star report uh, sequence where characters were like, what were they thinking? This is totally <laughs> off base. Like, like, obviously, these things happened. But, you know, and like, even Coulter, who's kind of thrilled by the details and but because she assumes this is like going to be Clinton's undoing. Of course, it wasn't. Um, even Coulter is like, well, this is like a distraction. Like they, they, they don't really talk about like what the crimes he committed, you know? Um, yeah. and I, I think that it, it was interesting to see like, uh, that in amid all that sort of flurry of ex- excitement, I suppose, uh, about all this that, um, people sort of pretty almost near immediately 
uh, saw that this was going that, that the salacious details were going to be distracting from what they hoped would be the thing that would you know really nail him to the wall. Yeah, there's such a hot mess quotient that I didn't anticipate in in all of this this going on. I also appreciated. I get this. I guess this is a little bit further, but there are like ten different reactions because of, of course this is the first time that a story like this is breaking over the internet. Where these characters are like, what the internet? Like Bill Clinton doesn't understand that this is going to go online immediately. It is such a terrifying TikTok for all the characters involved. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, right after this, we get kind of this cavalcade of it's like the um, Tonight Tonight reprise and West Side Story, where you see every character back like preparing to be part <laughs> of the action. Um, so uh, Linda Skeebelkomade is reading it. Uh, Judith Lights, uh, Susan Carpenter McMillan's reading it. Drudge, like a bunch of anonymous kids in a computer library somewhere. Chelsea at Stanford. Um, you, like Bob Schieffer's reading it live on the air. You've got all these like elbow to elbow TV cameras. Um, and yeah, like George Conway, I guess this is maybe the beginning of George Conway getting off of the uh, Republican media machine. It's like nobody, nobody's going to focus on the actual crimes in this. It's just spectacle. Uh, you know, we've talked about how this show is kind of about, uh, partly about like being a precursor to everything that we are living in now, you know, with the Internet and a certain kind of expectation from politicians or lack of expectation from politicians. Um, so I really like the kind of early Internet humor. Um, I, I, Mira Sorvino in particular, she's so good on this <laughs> on the show and, and her, her her asking Monica, has it arrived yet? <laughs> While this thing is trying to load, as if it's like a letter, um, and then on the phone with her ex-husband, being like, "Well, can't you ask one of the residents to help? You? So ask one of the young people at the hospital or whatever to help you with this." It just felt like, "Oh God, we were so young once." And there's that sad moment later where you see Monica's dad again. He's like, "I haven't, I haven't read it," and like, "Yeah, you don't, you can't tell if that's true in the, in the way that that scene is presented." Like, I, I, I hope he didn't, but. I felt I felt really bad for both of them in that scene. No, I was just gonna say I I don't I, I whether or not he had read it like it, probably the certain details of it were inescapable no matter what. Yes. I mean, yes, yeah. people were far less online. But I never read the Star Report, but I know a bunch of this stuff. I, I was thirteen, right? I only went back and read part of it after seeing the first couple of episodes, and it really is is just jarring the kinds of details that make it in there. Um, so, okay, so the Star Report comes out, and then we see its impact on a, on a variety of people, but maybe let's start with the Clintons, kind of while we're on them. Um, you know, Sidney Blumenthal uh, shows up again. He says that they'll they'll argue that it's too personal and way out of proportion, which I think is pretty much what the argument was. Um, Hillary very pointedly says that uh, she hasn't read it, but Chelsea has. Um, and the impeachment vote is is going forward in the meantime, and they're really trying to get the moderates on board. And his advisors tell him that, like, Hillary can make the calls to these advisors because she's super popular. Um, and they, they too, are stunned by how popular she is to the point that we see she gets a call from Charlie Rangel, who says uh, there's an open Senate seat in New York and you are our first choice. Um, we don't see her answer that. And you kind of see the smile on her face. Um, and it's kind of this is kind of the sequel, right? Like that's the Hillary's ascendance, um, which, you know, ends in a way that we all know. Um, but that that's the second part of this chapter. While Bill is kind of mired in this self-pity being like, they're just attacking me. They were always going to do this. Winnie the Broderick's another lie. And she's she's talking him out of it, but already planning her escape route, which I kind of can't help but be proud of her at this point in the series, despite how we know it ends. So then the last time we see Bill on this show is after the impeachment vote. Um, He's impeached in the House. He's acquitted by the Senate, as we know. So he stays in office and he tells this kind of long joke about 
a guy hanging from a cliff and asking God why him, and uh, God looks down at him and says, I just don't like you. Do you think that's the true way for Bill Clinton to think no. of himself and the chances he's been given in life? That is such self-pitying bullshit, and, and I, I, I appreciate that the, the, the crowd in the room, one of whom is Joseph Mazzello, I believe. Yes, yep. Um, they're, they don't, I mean, obviously, the, it's a very, like, a moment freighted with a lot of, like, concern and, you know, sadness and worry, whatever. But, like, they don't really react because it's like, oh, come on, dude. Like, you're, you're not Job. Like, you're not some poor, <laughs> benighted, you know, weary figure. Like, you did all this stuff, you know. Like, the, you, you brought this on yourself, you know. Um, yeah. And I think that's a, a nice little... I, I was curious how they were going to leave Bill in, on this show. Um, and I think this was a good button to be... To kind of indicate subtly, I guess, sort of toward the show's kind of overall estimation of... of um, how he viewed himself and his sort of like, oh, I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm a victim here, you know, because clearly that's not true. Yeah. Right. I enjoyed this ending on the sort of marital power reversal between the two of them. I was really happy to see Hillary get this moment in the sun, especially considering what she went through and how her poll numbers were continually, um, I guess, just damaged because of what Bill was, Bill was doing. But what she was, you know, let's scratch that whole thing. But I, I was just glad to see um, Hillary get this this moment in the sun between the Vogue cover and, and the call about Senate. Yeah, I definitely forgot that Vogue cover ever happened. So that was like a fascinating thing to revisit. Love that velvet dress. Uh. <laughs> um, so before we close, before we close out with the Arthur main characters, we could we revisit a couple of, of more minor figures, and we have uh, one one return from Drudge and Coulter, which. As much as we may uh, dislike them in real life, I, I I was happy to see them again. And I looked for evidence that Matt Drudge's Fox News set really looked like that. Like, <laughs> like an old war film. <laughs> we said, I told them Dragnet meets Star Trek, which is so funny. Um, but I did find, so the line that Coulter has um, talking about Paula Jones and her penthouse spread um, she used to have dignity and tremendous courage. Turns out she's just the trailer park trash they said she was. That's an exact quote from an Ankleter column from from that time. She might have said it on TV too, but you know that that tracks with what we would expect from her. Um, and the way that it leaves them with kind of dueling perspectives on if this is the beginning of a conservative movement or not, I think is really interesting. Where um, you know Coulter is pretty pessimistic about what's going to happen next. We're going to run our stupidest Bush for president. Um, and George kind of thinks it's the dawn of a new conservative era. And I think, I think he was right and she wasn't, and they both rode that way pretty effectively. Um, how do you guys feel about where, where we're leaving them here? Yeah, there's an interesting kind of prophecy in that. I think also I'm thinking about when Clinton says to one of his staffers, like, have you met the Republican leadership? You know, cause she's <laughs> like, Oh no, the reasonable ones won't do anything, you know? And I, yeah. I think that there's a lot of grim foreshadowing of, of what uh, is go- about to happen in just a few sh- short years and then continue to happen for the next 20 years. Um, and, uh, you know, you listen to Coulter say that and you're, you're like, oh, boy, I wish that were true. Uh, mm-hmm. And and unfortunately, I, Drudge is is seeing the further writing on the wall and, and, and is clearly right. And I think a lot of that has to do with Drudge being one of the people who uh, early on saw the power of the internet and that, um, you know, even a president with a clear voting, you know, a mandate from the voters uh, can be load or almost, 
you know, taken out by, by stuff that is partly, um, you know, online. Yeah. I just have a more superficial read of it, which I'm going to miss Kobe's, um, and Coulter, just the, she's having so much fun, which I believe she talked to you guys about, but that, mm-hmm. that read of the character is just with the wine glass in hand and that, that perfect wig. I'm going to miss that. Yeah. I like that she and Lucienne were the ones who were drinking in the middle oh. of the day <laughs> while <laughs> absorbing this report. Uh, Lucienne with her, I guess it was a martini. and then Looked like a, yeah. Coulter, well, obviously, yeah. with her dry white wine. Yeah, well, we'll get to Lucienne because she, she says, like, well, you can't say we didn't have fun. <laughs> and and you do think that Lucienne and Coulter may, might have enjoyed this process uh, more than anybody. Well, did, I mean, they yeah, they didn't really have a stake in it, you know, really. They just <laughs> yeah. kind of wa- set set fires and then watch them burn. They got to make some money and, and get famous. So and then walk away from the whole thing. Um, so let's check in with Paula before I think we get to Juanita Broderick, who's been a more minor player in it. But uh, Paula's uh, penthouse shoot happens. We kind of see her back at home in Arkansas with her mom and her son and and struggling. The The psychic friends uh, hotline call that she does is really heartbreaking. It, it, it's heartbreaking, but also kind of hilarious to get another glimpse at Annalie Ashford playing a bad actress because we've seen paula like reading lines with her husband before and now she's reading off of this script um but it also sets up really effectively why she gets this letter from penthouse and doesn't turn it down because she really needs the money um i did look up that penthouse had done two stories on her previously including publishing nude photos of her taken by her 31 year old boyfriend when she was 19 and she tried to sue to keep that from happening and lost. So this was the third time she'd been in Penthouse. And it was the first time with her consent, which is a really sad um, button on her story, I think. Um, and then so you, you guys mentioned earlier that you see her shoot kind of um, cross cut with Hillary Clinton's Annie Leibovitz shoot. And that's more or less where we leave Paula. How do you guys feel about it? I just felt so much anger about the way these women were treated and used and just left behind. So I, I just was sad the whole episode for for her and i think it's interesting paula hasn't really spoken up um publicly throughout the run of the series um i'm i'm just curious if she's been watching um what her relationship to the story is like now but i'm i'm just so sad again these are just women whose lives were sort of collateral damage yeah i i you know um i i think emily ashford is so good in the role and and that scene in particular where she's getting her hair done uh and is reclaiming a bit of her old self you know i don't want to be this dc beltway conservative figure you know who tool or prop or whatever um who has to keep her hair flat and not look you know not look good and and, you know whatever um and she has this moment of connection with this with this hairdresser a a woman on a very male dominated set uh you know who is in an industry (laughs) like a lot of women on the show are that is really controlled by men that is predatory toward women um and she thinks she kind of has a little moment with her. And then, of course, much like Linda in the elevator with the random person who asks her and who Linda tells about the cop salad, like, nope, like, can't escape this even here, you know. Yeah. And um, I think that's um, a perfectly believable uh, scenario. Yeah. And you've got before that the kind of heartbreaking. Oh, it's not really betrayal from Susan, because we've known all along that Susan was not operating with Paula's best interest in mind. But Paula really thought she was. And. For Susan to kind of call her and just shame her and, you know, credit to Paula for, you know, sticking up for herself, even though she's making a kind of questionable choice. But, you know, I liked I liked Judith Light. I liked Susan. I wanted to believe the best in her. And then she just kind of kicks Paula to the curb like everybody else. Um, 
Trivia note, did you know that Susan was actually at the mall that same day where Monica was there trapped for whatever being questioned that terrible manhandled episode? In addition to I saw that somewhere. Right. In addition to Linda being there shopping while Monica was kind of being held by by these uh, FBI or government officials, Susan was also shopping for earrings for Paula. That's so crazy. And then you know why they didn't put it in the show, because it just would have been like, what? That right. That's yeah. not real. But there it was. Um, okay, so we leave Paula, and then kind of a thread throughout this episode is uh, Lisa Myers at NBC News getting this interview with Juanita Broderick, um, who we've seen a couple times before. She has recanted her affidavit saying that Bill Clinton did not assault her, and then is a footnote in the Star Report, and... It's kind of an effort from um, an aide to aide to Lindsey Graham, who shows up twice in this episode. It's this guy, and then they say Laura Ingram dating Lindsey Graham. Um, and so Lorenita does this interview with Lisa Myers, and she's promised as she sits down for it that it will come out before the impeachment process is over. But it doesn't. By the time it airs, impeachment is over. Um, and NBC has said, or said at the time, that it wasn't really political. They were trying to fact check it. But I think since then, it's that that logic has kind of come into question. And before I let you guys talk about this interview, I will say that the NBC executive who was in charge of it, who kind of gave quotes to the Washington Post about why they held it at the time, was Andrew Lack, whose name you might remember because ah. he was also accused of killing Ronan Farrow's Harvey Weinstein story. And was also close friends with Matt Lauer and was, um was I don't want to say fired. He's He left NBC last year um, after a whole bunch of stuff that happened on his watch. So... That's history echoing itself, I guess. I one of the things this show has done so chillingly is be like, oh, the, these these names that you heard recently, they've been around for so long. <laughs> like mm-hmm. between Kavanaugh and Andrew Lack and just a Coulter and Ingram and and Drudge, everyone, it's just like nothing is that new, you know. Um, and uh, it, it's yeah, I mean, I, to to think about where. Juanita Broderick was being sort of thrown into and her sort of questions like when is this going to run you know all this stuff like that 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 these these industries the, the sort of uh, quote unquote safer havens for these women were also <laughs> compromised in, in a serious way mm-hmm. um I don't know I just think this episode is is doing a you know we, we said it do- doesn't jump forward in time to um to show us like where people ended up but it it does jump forward in time in, in terms of the way it's like echoing a lot of recent news, you know, it's like, yes. no, no, this is this, th- this is not over by any means. It's, it's only going to continue. Well, Renita Broderick's story is one of the ones that I think got a lot of fresh attention during the 2016 campaign and the Me Too, Too movement and all of those things kind of looking back at it, because as we see in this um, presumably apocryphal thing of two people at a bar asking to switch the TV over to the Grammys, um, she didn't get that much attention because her story really came out after impeachment. And then, in 2016 and 2017, a lot of people looked back and thought, why wouldn't we assume that she's credible? Um, so it's it's something that's kind of haunting. And I don't think the show really resolves it because it's hard to. It also, because Juanita Broderick, along with Paula Jones, attended the 2016 debate and the, uh, as a guest of Donald Trump. So it gets it gets really complicated really fast. Um, but I do think it was important to include here just to see that as part of the story. Yeah. All right. And Juanita was not doing interviews throughout the series because she's writing a screenplay about her experiences. Just a huh? trivia note. I would watch that probably. Um, did that scene in the bar make you guys think of the Truman Show at the end where they like change the channel after all the drama of the of the Truman Show? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. What else is on? <laughs> yeah, you know? basically. And what, like, what is the? It was the Grammys, right? The Grammys. She's, and she's like, oh, we missed it. I don't know what performance <laughs> she was sad to have missed, but yeah. Yeah, we'll have to go look up the uh, 1998 Grammys and, and exactly who played at what minute, <laughs> and then try to pinpoint where what time it is at the bar. Yeah. Well, I will say immediately after that, uh, and we'll get to Linda in a minute. But uh, there's the the scene of Linda undergoing plastic surgery, and the surgeons are talking about. Uh, they say Santana and Rob Thomas are coming to the Meriwether Post Pavilion, <laughs> which is a very 1999 sentence. Um, and I looked it up on Wikipedia. There's a very detailed Wikipedia page for the Supernaturals tour that Santana went on. So that was June 14th, 1999. I don't believe Just that so because you know. Know, that, that's 22 years ago. There's no way that music I was keenly aware of 22 years ago. I mean, that, that that's a, I feel like Rob Thomas was like five years ago. Matchbox yeah, no, 20, uh, yeah. Right? no, because yeah. 1999 was also five years right, ago. We're, yeah, very, so we're very young. Again, not they're, they're getting some historical accuracy things. <laughs> Um, okay, I think we can get to Linda now. Um, and her also super complicated uh, resolution of this story. Um, the first time we see her in the episode, she is uh, going to a law office to um, meet with her lawyer and the security guys are kind of laughing at her behind her back, which is presumably a pretty common thing for her. This is November 1998. So we're past the star report. Um, and she is uh, at risk of being indicted for taping um, because they have they claim she has federal immunity from the star team, but not state. And they mentioned that uh, Monica would be a witness against her. And then she gives kind of another speech about how the forces of the world are against her. She's been locked out of her job. And I, I wrote down a good bit of what she said. I trusted our institutions to trust a person like me, but instead I've been abandoned to an unceasing nightmare in which somehow everyone agrees that in this whole god-awful national tragedy that I'm the villain, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, Julie, as our Linda and Trip family correspondent, how did that play for you? Um, I mean, it was just just sad, and I felt like it, it very much kind of linked to the later scene where Linda's talking to her daughter Allison about her father and how he was this cheater and kind of a bad man, but people still preferred him. Um, he still kind of won the situation over the family and the females. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it just it did a really good job of, again, getting into Linda's complicated motivations for for perhaps going through with what she did. Um, but I, I thought it was well put another every every Linda scene I've been pretty much there for between Sarah's performance and and the writing, I thought was just incredible there. Yeah. What I, I didn't know about this, the plastic surgery. Um, was that like a, a it was a big, it was a big thing. Was it? It, it was. A yeah. Big, and Linda went on Larry King afterwards and Larry asked her point blank, like you got plastic surgery and it's kind of heartbreaking to look at the transcript because Linda explains like my kids used to think I was this beautiful person, but then <laughs> this story happened and they saw their mother being made fun of um all over the place her appearance and she made it seem in that interview at least as though that had been the reason but allison spoke a little bit too um just about how much that criticism obviously hurt her um that she would want to kind of soften the edges of of her face um but it's just so sad and chilling to see how both she and paula you know kind of took the public's criticism as um i don't know as real i don't know yeah i mean linda saying i i i you know very matter of factly like i didn't realize how ugly i was you know in, in this way is it's just like this is just accepted wisdom you know exactly um, 
was so yeah, that, ugh, yeah that's a direct line from a she did an interview on i think it's 2020 it was introduced by barbara walters you can watch the clip um with nancy collins who actually did that george interview and she said until all this happened i didn't know how ugly i was which is heartbreaking and that everyone was just so frank about it. they're like wow linda you dropped 30 pounds you got this new look new lease on life like it, there wasn't any sense of tragedy in her choice there which you know however linda presented it was how she chose to do it and maybe she was really happy with it but the way that the show depicts it it's hard not to feel bad about it so we do we do see linda reunite with lucianne one more time and i would have been sad not to see lucianne again and they're at some i don't know some party um and like we said before, like Lucianne's pretty uh, blase about the whole thing. And, you know, she says that Linda can't get a book. And Linda's like, this was never about a book. And Lin- Lucianne's like, um, okay. Um, and then Lucianne says she'll miss the Clintons when they go. And Linda's kind of horrified by it. And you see how Linda's kind of the like moral crusader. And she still thinks that's what she's doing. And Lucianne is just like on on to the next thing. Yeah, the, the sort of... Li- li- Lucian being like, oh, there's a woman who needs a drink. Let's get sauced, you know, or whatever she says. And you're like, oh, like, finally, Linda has found, like, an ally or refound her. And, 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 and she's in a, a, a safe space. It's a safe space full of monsters, sure, but from my perspective anyway. But, like, <laughs> it's something. And then just a few minutes later, Lucian very casually is like, oh, no, no, you're old news, whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I, that's quite a... um you know, a stark kind of realization for Linda. Um, and you feel for her because she thought maybe at least this, you know, I don't, I don't think that making common cause with Lucy and Goldberg is like a good thing to do maybe, but um, I, I wanted her to at least have one moment of fun and communion with another person. And then it, it didn't happen. A safe space full of monsters is an incredible title for a chapter, <laughs> a book. I don't know what, but. but well, that's what the book that uh, Katie's writing about Wesleyan. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so oh, let's see. So then, oh, go ahead, Julie. Oh, I was just going to say as a sad footnote, when Linda finally did write the book, I think it's called Basketful of Deplorables. She wrote it with, with a co-author and then she died during the middle of the book before it was published and the publisher kind of took control, picked the title of the book, picked the photos. And it's, it's sad that, you know, she didn't want this book, but she, she finally went ahead with the book and her daughter just said how outraged her mother would have been by the way the story was framed. Have you read that book? I I read selections, selections, and it does have a lot of Linda's first person um, observations at the time. But Allison just was so horrified by the packaging of it. She said her mother would be up in arms. Oh, that's that is a shame. Um, So we leave Linda in her her lunch meeting for George magazine talking about JFK Jr., which, of course, like if I had met someone who had worked for George magazine, I'd probably also ask if you met JFK Jr., um, she's had her plastic surgery. She seems pretty proud of it. And she, you know, walks past Monica's book signing and keeps going. And, you know, I think that she's asking the interview if she'd ever reach out to Monica. And she says that wouldn't be welcome. Um, but that's really the end of the end of Linda. And we've talked about Linda a lot in this episode. So I think we all agree that's a good place to end it. But any any final Linda thoughts from this scene or otherwise? I like that she said again that she was clarifying i think she said that monica was his victim not hers um i I thought that was just a good through line but it does just make me so sad for for both women and i just am am curious what 
an episode after this would look like. Yeah, there's an interesting thing there about we have a very <clears throat> there's a there's a commonplace kind of idea these days about like well I have to tell my story and and you know my truth and all that stuff and and uh, you know that 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 has been used in, in service of a lot of good things but I think that what the show what that scene really brings home is like you can't you can't do that for someone else necessarily you know hmm. and 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 Linda is right about the power dynamic between Bill and Monica she's right about a lot of things but her mistake um was in and maybe she's just justifying after the fact. Maybe those weren't really her reasons, or maybe they kind of were. Um, I, when I talked to Paulson, I think she kind of had a, you know, there was a, a, a sort of a lot at play. It's a mix of those things. Um, is that like, yeah, you this, that wasn't that wasn't yours to declare though, so publicly, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I don't know that she sees that in the end, but I think Linda can at least cling to the the simple truth that that she is right about. Um, the kind of uh the bad thing that happened and and who was at fault for it right yeah and even though she doesn't say there's any regret i think you see it on sarah's face maybe she doesn't need need to say that explicitly yeah i think that's been one of the the more brilliant things about this performance is how the 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 distance between what linda says and what she feels is really always evident um and we can't know for sure what she really felt versus what she said but i think the interpretation of what this version of Linda would have really felt is, is really visible. Um, and I'm kind of constantly fascinated by how Sarah Paulson pulls that off. And the way that uh, in a couple little short things, like this episode does show you that like she, she was kind. I mean, she's, you know, it's a simple thing, a tiny thing, but she's like nice to the waiter during the George magazine interview. And she kind of perks up when she's like, Oh yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a classic place to eat. Like their Cobb salad is famous, you know, like she's, she can be relatable and sort of pleasant, you know, and mm-hmm. um, she just got sort of sucked into this obsession that um, I think didn't reveal a, a lot of her true character. Right. No one could have foreseen how, how this would turn out. Um, well, let's close on the show, Monica, before we hear from the real Monica. Um, in this episode, she's mostly kind of hanging out, I, I believe at her parents' house in Los Angeles. And we kind of see her reacting to the star report, seeing this, press conference of feminists defending Clinton, which I think we've talked about to varying degrees about how feminists felt like they had to really stand behind him and didn't really rush to her defense in, a, in large numbers. Um, and then there's this long scene of her on a very beautiful Los Angeles hike uh, with her friend, which Julie, you lived in LA for a long time. So you can tell us um, where that was. <laughs> right. It's really right. that pretty in real life. Um, they're both wearing amazing nineties hats. <laughs> um, very accurate for the period. Um, and what I love about this scene, like you kind of see her reflecting on hearing the tapes and and this version of herself, but you really see her sense of humor about herself, which I think is um, you you can hear in the interview with the real Monica in a little bit. She's she's funny, and you see her in the grand jury testimony that she's funny. Um, and I think that's a really even though the episode ends on this uncertain moment for her, I think that hike with the friend really tells you more about how she's going to be okay and get through it. That she's got p- real friends. That she's got an ability to kind of move past it and, or at least like go on a hike and get away from it for a little while. Right. I appreciated that they ended her character on an upbeat, optimistic note of, of strength throughout the episode. They clearly could have, you know, focused in on the the darker emotions and understandable reactions to that entire saga. But I appreciated that they, even though she was the victim of this unthinkable, uh, scandal i guess by the media treatment by the media that she was able to uh, 
be optimistic and again so savvy considering what she went through yeah yeah we see her uh you know when she's doing her last um testifying and she's like look can we just get through this like i have lawyers i'm paying a lot of money (laughs) you know and and she she she, there's a a hard one savvy you know um obviously that the final note of monica is one of a bit of disquiet you know but but the the hiking scene, I think, is so lovely. And I mean, look, they're literally gazing out at the horizon. It's not subtle, but <laughs> but it's but it's effective. I mean, I've never seen Los Angeles that clear. By the way, the sky, but they must have. I don't know how the hell they filmed that. But um, but I think that one thing the show doesn't tell you is that Monica, right before this hike, because I read something about this, right before the hike, she and her friend broke onto the set of Blossom and stole those hats. <gasps> oh. <laughs> I was like, how wait, is this they? a real? Yes. <laughs> I think Plotson was not running at that in 1999. But, I yeah. think I had that straw hat that Monica's wearing, though. That's very familiar looking to me. I feel like my sister had it for an American Girl doll, but maybe there was like a, like yeah, a human-sized version. Had that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so we see Monica going back to testify one more time. She's moving on. It's, you know, it's kind of one step forward, two steps back, or two steps forward, one step back, depending on how you look at it. Because right after that hike, she turns on the TV and sees... Someone being like, can you imagine your son coming home and saying he's going to marry Monica Lewinsky? So it's it's always there. And she can't help herself from turning the TV on. You know, you want her to not do it. And she does it anyway. It's it's unavoidable. Yeah, I thought about that son line. Like, the the, the, the broader implication of that is like, can you imagine if your son had sex? <laughs> with someone who also has had sex previous to your son and it's like oh, and yeah it's like, sure. why are you thinking about your son's sex life so much right. you guys just like, like leave him alone <laughs> it's just so gross i mean you know and 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 obviously entirely i'm sh- many many people said similar things i'm sure at that time and since yeah um so we see her packing up the apartment at the Watergate uh again cuz you remember in the very first episode we see her packing up thinking that she's moving to New York and it's a it's a nice little full circle symbol of how much her life has been trapped uh for the previous 2 years and again with that kind of dark sense of humor she finds her letter accepting her into the White House intern program which I hope she burned. I would not have kept it if I were her. Um, and then I love when we jump ahead to her in New York. And I do remember from the coverage of the time being like, Monica's living in New York now. And she's designing handbags. I can't remember where the handbags fit in. Um, and she has the universally uh, acknowledged symbol of moving on with your life. She's carrying this beautiful bouquet of flowers down the street. Like, oh. if you're carrying flowers, you're either, like, in a good place, you're about to be assassinated. And I'm glad that it's a, it's a positive symbol for her. What do you guys think of her apartment? It, it's big. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> She's lived in the Watergate. She's used to large spaces. Yeah, I mean, I I did a little bit of reading about like where Lewinsky went, right? You know, following this, like two thousand, two thousand one, and it, it, it there was some not great stuff. You know, I mean, she was just trying to get by. You know, much yeah. in the same way that uh, Paula Jones was. Um, but I think that what the person you know in the bar turning off, the, changing the channel on the television shows you is that like and all the stuff with the apartment and the the hike and all the the kind of moving on aspect is that like that people do slowly forget i know that lewinsky herself has written for this magazine and in other places and talked a lot about like it didn't end for her anytime soon you know and probably never will but there was at least some like the the immediacy of it kind of did eventually fade you know and um uh i i think it's yeah it's it's nice to see her in a new place and, and kind of trying to do something. And then of course the the last scene is a little bit less hopeful, but 
Yeah, so we get to that that book signing in the last scene. I I assumed that was the um that was supposed to be the Union Square Barnes and Noble. I don't know if that was as obvious a signifier for everybody, but that just felt right. Um and in the interview with Monica in a minute, she says that actually happened in London. Um, you know, that's a kind of a simple way to to simplify the story there. Um and it ends on her kind of taking a minute after all this huge crowd of people surrounding her saying, I'll be okay. Not I am okay, but I'll be okay. Um which is kind of heartbreaking. Julie, how'd you feel about it? It was heartbreaking, but again, I appreciated just that she she was the victim of this this whole series and, and they gave her that strength at the end and um, kind of showed what had been forged through all of this all of this public unthinkable trauma. So I just appreciated that little bit of upbeat, even if in the moment she is not okay. Did you talk? I'll tell you a brief story about. um, Sorry, no, about that Barnes and Noble (laughs) Union Square. We can cut this. But um, uh, the day that my book came out, I was like, everyone's like, you have to go see it in a bookstore, and I was like, oh no, no, no. And I was like, you know what? Like seven p.m. I was like, fine, I'm just going to go do it. I got on the Q train, went to Union Square, walked upstairs to the young adult section, and because my last name begins with an L, the, the the shelves are A through L and then M through Z. So mine was on the bottom shelf in a corner behind a ladder. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. So you're saying there weren't like crowds of people waiting to meet you? at the, Oh, no, there were. I mean, there's hundreds yeah. of people. They were so yeah. excited. But Monica's last name starts with an L, too. So maybe hers was in the same spot. <laughs> well, right. hopefully not in the young adult section. But yes. <laughs> Um, so yeah, we'll we'll hear um, from Monica, I think, and maybe we'll we'll share our final thoughts after that. So let's uh, listen to my interview with Monica Lewinsky. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Monica, thank you for joining us on this show. It's been, um, you know, we've been watching all uh, 10 episodes of impeachment. We've been talking about it in detail. We've been really excited to hear from you. And it's so exciting to talk to you now that the whole series has aired because I just want to know how you feel. Now it's all out there. The season is done. How does it feel? I'm relieved. (laughs) It is. uh, It's been it has been an extraordinary experience to sort of to wear both hats of being a producer and a subject. Um, and so I think that, and, and my first time doing both of those in that way has, uh, has meant that I've learned a lot on the job. Um, but I, I really, you know, as a producer, I'm very proud of, of the show. And, and I think everybody, um, everyone involved just worked really hard, especially during COVID, but I think really poured themselves into this idea of trying to bring forth, um, this story that everybody thinks they know, and they know details of in a, in a, in a more nuanced way with more humanity. Um, you know, it was fascinating. Uh, I don't know if I can quote him, so I, I won't say who it was, but someone last night, uh, made such an interesting point about 
how the first six episodes really reshape episodes seven through 10, which seven through 10 is sort of, you know, the part where you come in, where, where the rest of the world came into this story. And so I'm really fascinated by this idea of, of what it means to, to provide all of that context and nuance, which I hope is, is what happens. So for people, I don't know what your experience has been. Oh, man. I mean, it's really the same thing. And it's been a lot of interesting things of like, what I thought I knew, what I did know, what I never knew. I think when you talk to people of different generations, and different ages, you know, when we've had previous guests on the show, we ask them what they remember from the time. And everyone has a, a lot of really wide variety of, of answers, even people who are pretty informed now, like the way that that story trickled into people was really different. And um, I'm sure you've encountered that plenty of times talking to people about it, too, what people think they know and what they actually do know. Right. Well, I also think, you know, one of the things and, and we see this reverberating today, too, is that. This whole um, problematic but very human story was just really, I think the top note to it was political ideology. So mm -hmm. that's so much, you know, that's a lot of what I hear from people too of just, um, you know, I actually work with somebody who, who very generously said to me a couple of years ago, um, he said, you know, I, I feel terribly because I saw you and your family like, I just never thought about it because I'm such a staunch Democrat. I just mm -hmm. saw it through that lens. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's one of the things, one of the reasons that one works on something like this is that you hope it's sort of by looking and, and combing through the past, you know, with a magnifying glass in some ways that, that we learn something to bring forward. Yeah. Yeah, we've talked about that a lot, about how it really scrambles your partisan alliances watching the show. Like, I think it really encourages you, even if you, like that guy you spoke to, are a staunch Democrat, mm -hmm. think, who was in the wrong here? Who was making bad decisions? And who was maybe making or had the righteous cause, but went about it in the wrong way? It's not easy to have partisan lines in, in the way this show tells the story, which I really appreciate. Oh, good. Good. Um, so you mentioned last night you were at a uh, screening and a Q&A with all the women of impeachment, basically. And I'm not sure how much you've been in touch. And with COVID, I know you probably haven't gotten together much. So what was that experience like of, of capping the series with everybody back together? You know, it was, a, it was such a, a, I think magical is actually the word that kind of comes up for me. And it was, uh, so I got to be the moderator, which I enjoy asking the questions instead of answering <laughs> a lot more. <laughs> me too. Although I somehow managed to stress myself out and over-prepare in the exact same way. Uh, it was a little <laughs> annoying, but there we are. Um so it was great. It was so I moderated a panel with Sarah Paulson, Beanie Feldstein, Annalie Ashford, and Sarah Burgess, the, the writer, in case people don't know. But and Annalie was Paula, Beanie played me, Sarah was um, Linda. Uh, and it, it was it was so lovely to all be together and to sort of have this moment of discussing the show and the process um, and the experiences in a, in a warm environment like that, just kind of loose. Mm -hmm. I mean, I spent some time, spent time with, with Beanie, um, but, and, um, Sarah Paulson, Beanie and I hung out together in July. There was a, um, they did like a screening of episode one, mm -hmm. uh, in, mm -hmm. in July. And so, um, it was, you know, it's a very surreal experience. I think we all sort of toggle back and forth, but we, we have this, shared landscape now of, of experience, you know, and, and I, and certainly Beanie understands my lived experiences in a, um, in a very unique way. 
What a funny experience to have having, you know, your story being understood by people and people kind of choosing the version of you to know and then having a relationship with Beanie and her diving into it from your perspective. I, I wonder if that reframes the way you think of it as just kind of having another you out there. Who... Oh, no, <laughs> one one me is enough, right? The two the two versions of me that were in '98, you know, that was like, wow, okay. Um, but I think most people who know me well would be like, you're I'm already enough, too much. <laughs> so uh, a little Monica in your life, but um, uh, yeah, I, you know, one of the things, and we talked about this. I won't keep saying we talked about this last night, but. Uh, I think one thing that was really uh, interesting, I, and I was curious to hear from Beanie, because the, the thing that I've heard a lot from people is how they've been surprised, even though they obviously didn't have the same experiences that I had, that they've been surprised to find themselves in Monica's experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has so much to do with um, how Beanie sort of created this space for, for the quote unquote public or the audience in a way of really finding, um, finding the humanity in my story and, and, and by focusing on those things, I think really trying to bring the emotional truth with those aspects, like everyone has had heartbreak. Um, most people have been betrayed in some way or some point. Beanie spoke really eloquently last night about, and so true you know, what your early twenties are like when you first get out, you know, there's this very strange, um, pod of time, you know, in your early twenties where you, you know, there's sort of this age you're looking to get to and you think, ah, now I'm going to be an adult. And once I'm an adult, I'm into this and I'm into that and I'm the other. And then, you know, you come into the world, you have no idea about consequences. You have no idea, you know, about, about, um, I think, so many different things, right? That sort of fabric of, of life that we get with age. And, um, but at the same time, you know, in hindsight, you realize just how fucking young you are and how little, you know, and, um, you know, we, we all experience. So I think that when you're just trying to figure out who you are in the world and so much of that starts to come from reflections of what you see and hear from other people in a way that's different from how we're shaped by our, our family. Yeah. Um, you've talked about how you didn't want to let yourself off the hook as a producer and you you encourage the writers to include moments that maybe, you know, weren't as flattering to you. And you talked about the thong moment, but the one that really stuck with me is in the, the Revlon job process. And there comes in an offer to work at the UN and Beanie as you is like, I don't want to work at the UN. And it's this very kind of childish moment. Yes. Of, and I think, yes. I think she gets called out on the show for like being kind of spoiled about it. And right. I wonder about you signing off on that moment and including it and why it felt worth doing you know well I think just first to be really clear there was no um I didn't have a sort of sign off there I didn't have approval in that Mm -hmm. way so I think that there was meaningful dialogue but um you know there there were things in the show and things in my past that I wish you know hadn't been there or different things but if I liked everything that was in the show then I don't think everybody did their job you know so um but it was you know, I think that it was an important moment because it both, it sort of reflected my age in some ways too, the immaturity mm-hmm. and the sense of, I think that um, it, it was less about entitlement. I mean, some people could look at it and say it was a, a moment of entitlement, 
which they're fair to, to look at it that way. I think how I perceive it more knowing myself having been there, (laughs) I uh, uh, I think that that it was very much just about not understanding how the world really works, you know, Mm -hmm. in that way, right? Like, remember this was all, you know, the, the, I had my internship and then my job in legislative affairs. It was my, the first time I was hired post-college, you know, I had part-time mm-hmm. jobs. This was my first full-time job. Um, so it, 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 I think just that idea. And then when I was at the Pentagon, I was, um, this being like way too detailed of a thing, but anybody who knows like how the government system works, it's like a GS rating and your GS rating determines your pay. And so I was a GS nine, but most of the people who at the Pentagon, who, who had the same job I did for other, um, principals were usually like a GS 13. So they're people who had been in the, in the system for a very long time. So I, my whole sense of the work and work ethic, like that way was warped, you know, um, so that was a very long answer. Sorry. <laughs> so. Well, no, but I think that does a really good, exactly what you said of just being like not seeing all the different wheels in motion and not realizing that this is going to become public knowledge, which is the theme of the whole show. Yeah, exactly. And also I didn't like working at the Pentagon. That's, you know, nothing, nothing against the people who were there. I, I, I was young. I couldn't appreciate, um, a lot of things. I mean, I often joke that it was like, I was like private Benjamin there. You know, I, w- I went shopping at Banana Republic to go to Bosnia for the first time. I was like, what do I wear to meet the troops in Bosnia? You know, so it's like, I better go to Banana Republic. And, you know, unlike every other person in DC, I didn't own khaki pants. So I had to get khaki <laughs> pants because that's what you wear to meet the troops. And, um, you know, so I, I think that it was just a, um, where the White House and, and Ryan, Brian had a sense of this um, instinctively in in how he was toning the show. You know, there's all of this color that's, mm. you know, both at the White House and from my time at the White House. And there it, there is a sort of, um, you know, fluorescent light blandness that comes through at the Pentagon. Yeah, no, that set is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask about the final episode and where it leaves you. And because I was really kind of hoping for a real jump in the future, like your TED Talk or something mm-hmm. like that, kind of catch up with you now. And it leaves the Monica of the show at this real moment of moving forward. It's Beanie Feldstein saying, I will be okay. And you're not sure that she <laughs> will. <no. laughs> yeah. That no. seems very true to the way that you speak about that time in your life. And I just, mm-hmm. does, does that feel true? Does that feel like the way to end the story that it's not necessarily a guaranteed happy ending, that there's, there's a lot of work to do left? Yeah. I, I think, I hope, I really, really hope nobody um, finishes the episode and thinks that this was a happy ending. Um, so because you're, you're hundred percent right that there is an ambiguity there that's sitting there or a subtlety, but the point around it is, you know, like in a trauma response effort, Monica is trying to tell herself she will be okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm using me in the third person just because it's the script. I know. I it's such a weird, ask you I know. about it's a, it's a, I, I have a, I have a, a wonderful friend who's, who's in the industry, who's just helped me a lot throughout this process and giving me guidance and different things. And he's always responding. He's like always reminding me it's Monica in quotations, you know, there's <laughs> you and then there's the character Monica in quotations. Well, that's what she says in this episode too. She's like, I got to go out and be Monica. So yeah. It's an extra layer of. Right. <laughs> of exactly. and, and it's a, you know, it's such a, I, I think it's so hard for people to understand. It would be hard for me to understand. We know, um, we know, 
fame, celebrity, notoriety, whatever those things are, most of the time we see them because someone has sought them in some way. And mm-hmm. so they've just kind of prepared and, and, and to have been um, someone who, you know, aside from like maybe wishing I could be a better performer in musical theater, I I didn't want to be famous. <laughs> I didn't want to be well-known. So um, uh, it was such a, such a steep climb, you know, to just be thrust onto the world stage at such a young age and then become a, a public person and to come to understand their expectations of you, your commodity. Um, it's yeah. Is that how you remember that book signing in particular? Does that one, um, you know, it? like, so, so the thing is like a lot of the things in the show, there are, you know, truncated timelines sure. and location. So the actual location was in London. My first book mm-hmm. signing was in London and it was, I had a freak out because, um, for over a year I had run every time there were cameras in my face and people were flashing. I, I ran, I hit, you know, the instinct was people were taking something from me and, um, here I was, I volunteer, you know, I had voluntarily been sitting there. I had made this, de- <coughs> excuse me. I made this decision to do that. And, um, and it was, uh, it was terrifying. It was just really over- overwhelming is probably a better word. Yeah. I mean, so your, your HBO Max documentary, 15 Minutes of Shame, is about basically exactly what the title says, like people now enduring what you did for their 15 minutes of being shamed online. And it's a, a lot about what you're talking about, about not signing up for it. And it's, it debuted last month as the series has been airing. So what's it felt like having those both out there in the world at the same time? Is it like the past and the present colliding? <laughs> yes. Does it feel like they speak to each other? It's, it's, yes, they very much so. I mean, in, in some ways, you know, it's sort of like a soft coda. The doc is, is kind of a soft coda in some ways that it's, it's been both fantastic, I think, because there, there ended up being this interesting crossover and overlap. Uh, on me personally, it's been, challenging um, because I don't like doing media. And so, and it takes, I do a lot of, it takes a lot for me to show up to do these kinds of things. So to have two projects coming out um, was a little overwhelming, but I, I, you know, was really lucky that all of the people with whom I, I spoke about both projects, you know, came to the table with just an, an interest in the projects or an interest in me that wasn't wasn't gotcha journalism like mm-hmm, I had mm-hmm. before. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, yeah. But I, I think that there is this, you know, there's this, for me, what was fascinating with 15 minutes of shame, um, not only just to kind of see how this has exploded as a, as a social pandemic, um, but I was really into the kind of the, we call them history pods in production, but just the kind of the history that threaded through of, um, stepping back and looking at, you know, where did we go? Shaming's been around since the beginning of time and throwing stones and and what it meant when it was a social tool um, to then becoming commoditized and mm. to sort of see where my story and technology all braided together and what those moments meant was was really fascinating to me. I think it's so interesting that it's happening. This sh- your documentary and the show are coming at this moment where we're looking back at stories of the past and rethinking them with your story, the Britney Spears documentaries. Like there's a lot of it happening for a lot of women, not a coincidence that it's mostly women. 
And yet, I think as your documentary shows, when a new person shows up on social media, everyone just jumps on it again to judge them. Like, we can't resist that urge to see people one-dimensionally. Why are we so bad at this still? (laughs) Are we getting better at it, at least, you think? Um, You know, uh, what I have liked to have seen more progress in the last, you know, five, six years, fuck yes. You know, (laughs) Um, do I think the fact that we have certainly seen throughout history, there have been many times where there have been problems and issues and they've been buried underneath and people don't talk about them. So the fact that there, you know, we have an incredible outlet like HBO Max, who's paying to have a documentary to talk about these issues. And we are looking at them is, I think, is a positive sign. Uh, you know, human nature is complicated. And I think w- one of the, another place where these two things dovetail in terms of American crime story and and 15 Minutes of Shame is around the American Crime Story, you know, the, the anthology series is very much about, uh, I was so fascinated to learn this. It's not that it's a crime that happened in America. It's a crime that was, you know, abetted by Americans. Yes. Yeah. You know, and by the, uh, the audience is implicated in what happens. And I think that's very much, you know, yes, we, you know, technology and the platforms need to change. You know, yes, the laws need to change. But we, human nature, human behaviors, there are things we can do right now to start to change that too. And I hope that, you know, people will see from watching 15 Minutes of Shame to understand, you know, stories of people or names that you knew and to to see what happened behind the scenes and behind the curtain there, um, to have a real experience of that tsunami of shame coming at you. I hope yeah. it, it encourages people to rethink their behavior just a little bit. <laughs> have you watched the Britney Spears documentaries or the Paris Hilton ones or any of the other ones kind of in this, what I think of as this, not a genre, but like encouragements to rethink the past. Do those resonate with you? So, you know, I have not, um, I haven't, I haven't because there are, I, I, I think that there's like, I've of course been very aware of all the media around them and had a lot of conversations around them and know what happens in different ways, but there's, um, I think because they came out like while we we're working on the show, I, I don't know if this is going to sound weird to people. I just felt in some ways um, it was challenging for me to work on the show, challenging to go into the past. And so I just felt like I needed to be protective of the time, the emotional, mm-hmm. not my time, but my emotional space. And yeah, yeah. I, does that make any sense? Like, oh, yeah, well, that's like been the work, right? For, you know, for a while of learning to protect your emotions. Yes, exactly. So uh, I, I, I think that it, it um, there were so many times that I got triggered, you know, from things that nobody ever would have imagined I would have gotten triggered from that I just thought, well, I better wait. I better wait yeah. to do that. I better wait to read that or watch that. And, um, Given my lived experiences, I could, I felt like I can speak in, you know, in an informed way on what, what that means. And, and I think it is, I think it is very important that we are having those conversations um, and that people are listening and that they're looking, they're looking, they're, they're understanding that when somebody becomes, whether it's through shame or something else, they become a public commodity that, um, and not, not in a way that's consensual, not by their choice. Mm-hmm. That there is a, there's a, there's a price that that person pays. And when they're in the public eye, what's really important to understand about that too, is that we as a collective, particularly, you know, the gender or the sex or the, you know, all of those aspects, 
those people all pay collectively as well. Young women mm-hmm. paid a price of seeing what happened to Brittany, seeing Paris, seeing what happened to me, you know, wh- whether I made a mistake and they didn't, it, it sends a message to other people. And I think that's something that we have to be mindful of too, that there is collateral damage with these kinds of things that happen publicly. That links up with, uh, with a re- recurring thing on the show I wanted to ask you about, which is about the way it treats uh, 90s diet culture and body culture, which it's, it's not an explicit theme of the show, I don't think, but it's just there. It's kind of ever present, especially in the, in the show version of Monica and Linda. And looking back at that, you know, you were watching these, these episodes. Does it do you look back at now and think about how crazy that was? Does it feel like a really important way to frame that story? Because it really it hit me hard seeing it depicted that way. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's it's like my brain goes in two places. So one um, I think you're younger. You're definitely, I know you're younger than yeah. me, but you're, yeah, you're a different generation. So yeah. I'm embarrassed to tell you, I'm still the same way about like, I hope nobody ever surreptitiously records me again or listens into my conversations, <laughs> but, um, it's probably, I probably still talk about those kinds of things a lot. Um, but I also, for me, my inroad into it was really, I think it was actually because in the first episode that happens. And I think there was, it was a very rich moment for me with the producers and Sarah Burgess, the writer, because I think it, I was experiencing that lunch scene between Linda and Monica as um, all I had in my head was the SNL skit. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so all I could see, and I was like, are you mocking us? You know, and I didn't, I, I couldn't understand, you know, what it meant that it was, that it was not being written that way. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that, that it was a very interesting, you know, this is not answering your question, but I just think it was an interesting moment in, in production of, of understanding of, of them understanding what my ground zero was like what I was, yeah, you know? Yeah. So it's um, that I didn't have an experience of seeing somebody portray me, portray me except for in mocking skits. So, um, but it, it was, I think in it, it, it was very evocative of the times though, too. I think, you know, if, if the equivalent of it today is the conversations would be like, well, I, you know, can't have lunch now because my intermittent fasting isn't over for an hour. Or, well, this, I found this great keto friendly bloop de bloop de bloop. So we still do it. I think it's just maybe not the branding is different. The branding is around the, the, the way we eat the program versus like Weight Watchers and the smart ones and the, you know, slim fast and, oh. I think it just sets up so much the way that women are valued in the world of the political world is being set up in this show and like how you are taught to value yourself. And it, it's, sure. it's so much of the the scenery of what was going on. Right. Well, and, and so also, effective. too, I think that it speaks very much to it's an inroad into that conversation of not only as a culture, what we did with people who um, did not set out to be well known. You know, Paula, Linda, myself, all had our appearances picked apart, you know, mm-hmm. and, and usually in mocking ways. Um, and I think that, that that's a reflection of, you know, and, and go broader. It, I think that that Hillary Clinton also had that, that there was this broader sense of misogyny, you know, that um, 
I had always hoped there would sort of be, a, but it just didn't work of like, you know, this moment of, I'm sure one could have found a day where Paula Jones, Linda Tripp, myself, Hillary Clinton, like any Kathleen Willey, Juanita Broderick, like all of these women were being, you know, scrutinized for their physicality in some way um, in the media in one day, you know? Yeah. So it was just, I, I think that's, um, you know, it, it is uh, misogyny is bipartisan. bipartisan. <laughs> it's amazing how that works. I have to say, I know the 90s fashion on the show can really run the gamut, but there are some really good outfits that Beanie wears that I have like thought about. Like some of it has held up that I it's, it's, I was impressed because there's a lot that we would all prefer to leave behind, but some good stuff. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I was, the, I, I was a long proponent of floral dresses and combat boots. So yeah. And they're back. I know it's, it's funny because I'm, I'm very close to my aunt Debbie. And, um, when I was in high school, my mom, I wanted a pair of Doc Martens. My mom was like, that's ridiculous. Those are men's shoes or whatever. But, you know, whatever, like, those are not ladylike, whatever. She, yeah. you know, if she didn't like it, then I shouldn't wear it kind of a thing. And my aunt, of course, like, took me out and bought them for me. And and then when I wore them with dresses, it was like, I think my, you know, my family was like, what are you doing? I'm like, this is stylish. <laughs> make, make their heads explode. That's, that's yeah. what you're supposed to do when you're, uh, when you're young. Yeah. Um. So you, you know, you go into telling to working on this show kind of not unwillingly, but knowing that if someone's going to tell the story, you want to be part of it. And this does feel like a really definitive version of the story. And I'm wondering if you feel like, is this definitive? Is this the end of it? Mm -hmm. Can you close can you close a, a chapter here somehow or does it not feel that settled yet? You know, I think it's um, it's a you know, the show is a is a is a dramatization, not a documentary. And I, and it's, you know, 10 episodes that I always joke, like if they had put me in charge of the 10 episodes, they would have been all been about the, my first day of my internship, <laughs> like, <laughs> like I'm so detail oriented and this and that. And I would, you know, and, and I was often saying, well, what about this person who did this and that? And they're like, Monica, like, you know, one of the things I learned of just an audience can't hold that many characters, you know? Yeah. So I think that there's, you know, this, there was so much emotional truth, in the series and it captured so much. And I, I think it, I hope it leaves people with a, with a better understanding of not only what happened to many of us at that time, but also what we experienced. Um, and a lot of the work, the personal work I've had to do over the years that really was, was what led up to my Vanity Fair essay in 2014 mm -hmm. was around reframing for myself, this recognition that um, I couldn't run away anymore. From what happened, yeah. I, that there was going to be, there was no putting 1998 Monica Lewinsky in a box and shipping her off into some far universe and starting over. And so the, the personal work that I had to do that was fucking hard was around integrating that. And so mm -hmm. I think for me, it is, and I also, you know, you also see with the story, I don't think anybody would have thought, you know, 20 plus years ago, oh, it's still going to be even, you know, without the series, right? It's still going to come up in conversation. It will yeah. still be a, a cultural touch point. I don't think anybody would have put money on that. Mm -hmm. And so for me, you know, where I had to get comfortable is just this story is a part of our cultural, like, tapestry. And as society changes, it changes, um, you know, I, it's not where I'm focused. It's not where I want to focus. I, I, 
I'm very fortunate to have a first look deal with 20th television for, you know, and that's where my focus is on telling other people's stories at the moment. But I just don't, I ha- I haven't, you know, I, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't know. I don't know if the chapter will ever be closed on this. I don't know, you know? So I think it's like silly to try and speculate (laughs) at this 20 plus years on, you know, (laughs) it just is like, I'm not sure that's a, like, yeah, sure. That's the, that's the nice answer that I, I would love to be able to give. But I think that version, the version of that, that answer is the same as Monica saying, I'll be okay at the end of, you know, 10. Yeah. That's the best so, way to think of it. I mean, so uh, in telling other people's stories, you have, you know, use your lived experience, as you were saying, to kind of reflect on people living through these moments of public humiliation. Does that feel like you're expanding that lens? Like, are you telling a wider range of stories? You know, it's been almost 10 years since that Vanity Fair essay. You're kind of oh my God. expanding in so many different directions. Yeah. Well, okay. I'm so like grateful. Seven, not, not there right, yet. Seven, I know. Um, but, um, but yeah, what's the focus? Like, what what is the the broadening out of your focus from here? I think that there's, you know, I'd probably say that that there's kind of this, it seems there's a nucleus of ideas I'm drawn to that are around, um, you know, telling stories, whether it's someone's story we thought we knew and seeing it through a different angle or lens or perspective or reexamining um, an issue through a story is also mm-hmm. really interesting to me. Um but I also have a, a wider range. Of, I mean, like I'm super interested in space. I'm interested in spy things. I, you know, so there's just kind of a wide, a wide range of things that I'm interested in. But I think it is about trying to tap into the unique experiences I've had and how that's shaped my lens um, for storytelling. So it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm really excited. And, and it's, it's nice that the, the decks are kind of, cleared with these two projects. And now mm-hmm. all I really get to focus on is sort of these is, is future forward in, um, in telling other people's stories and different kinds of stories. So. Well, we got your space spy thriller. Like that sounds great. I know. <laughs> I don't know when you're making that, but exactly. On, please. <laughs> um, I think that's a good place to end it. Thank you so much. Thanks for, Katie. For Okay, so I mostly want Monica to have the last word, but any closing thoughts on impeachment? I have enjoyed watching and talking about this series so much. I really hope more people get to watch it. You know, the, its ratings have been fairly well publicized as being lower than I think many of us might have hoped, but it'll be on Netflix eventually. You know, if people have listened to this and want to sell their friends on it, like, do we hope this has a kind of a growing legacy as the years go by? Well, isn't there an interesting kind of... uh parallel or echo there where it's like many of us could only reconsider the Lewinsky story uh with the distance of time and sort of perspective and now hopefully once this thing is on Netflix <laughs> um other people can consider the show you know yeah um I, the, the, I, I know it's all has to do with broadcast rights and legal stuff about why impeachment was not readily available on Hulu for example you know where people could watch it um who don't have like broadcast cable or whatever um so yeah i hope you know if if you listen to this and watch the show and liked it and then someone you know says oh i'm a few months from now that they're watching on netflix point them to us because um lots of great interviews and all that stuff i know i and i'm looking forward to sarah paulson's uh turn at the emmys next time around for this this character 
Yeah, I, I really, I mean, God knows we'll get into Emmy speculation soon enough. I hope that the relatively low profile of this show doesn't prevent that from happening because I, I'm hard pressed to imagine I'll see a better performance on TV between now and then, but we'll see. Well, that does it for impeachment. Um, thank you again for joining us on this journey. You can still listen to Richard and Sonia on Succession, which is not a fun show, but I guess is more fun than impeachment because it's terrible fake people. It's all fake. That's that's the thing. You don't have to be like, well, but in in real life, you know, it's all made up. Well, yeah, because there are no bad, uh, um, soulless rich people out there running the world. In nope, reality, they're all good. We, mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, and please, if you haven't yet, read Julie's many great pieces about impeachment on VF.com and um, email stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear your wrap up thoughts on the series, um, even if we will not have another impeachment episode. And you can sign up on subtext to hear from us about succession from now on. Um, go to joinsubtext.com slash stillwatching or text 213-652-6717. Um, other than that, Richard, where can people find you? Well, I'm starting a business that um, makes period appropriate kitchens for shows set in the 90s. Yeah, because I just cannot stand. There were not <laughs> islands and you were born to do and granite countertops in the same way. There were not farmhouse sinks, and <laughs> accepted real farmhouses. Um, but other than that, I will be tweeting at Rylaws and writing at VF.com. Julie, how about you? I am tweeting from at Julie W. Miller. Um, and I will be busily reconstructing my own um, TV set that looks like uh, Dragonette meets Star Trek. It's my my dream. And Richard, your show can help me build that too, I think. While wearing the Samantha hat. <laughs> so obviously. Um, and I am tweeting at uh, Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And as always, thank you to our editor and producer, Dave Gonzalez. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.